Hey, we are so thankful that you're taking the time to tune into Grumwatt Church's podcast. It's our hope that this is an encouragement to you as you draw closer to Jesus. If you'd like to find out more about all things Grumwatt or for more info on our in-person gatherings, you can check us out at grumwatt.com. Now lean in. We're expectant for how God is going to use this time to speak to you today. When you think of the most meaningful, the, the strongest, the, the longest standing relationships in your life, what is it that established? What is it that, that solidified those relationships? Right? Strong and regular communication, that helps. Mutual respect, openness, honesty. I mean, all that stuff's really, really important. But, but what actually sits above, well, all of that? What is the thing that all of that stuff that I just mentioned actually contributes to? That, that, that all of that actually helps to establish. D- don't overthink it. It's an ever so important five-letter word. Trust. Th- th- this is what sustains marriages. This is what sustains friendships. Th- this is what all healthy relationships are built upon. And, and conversely, let's look at it from the opposite side. W- what is it that erodes relationships? W- what is it that causes divorce? Once close friends to suddenly stop talking, parents and, and kids to treat one another as if they no longer exist. Again, don't overthink it. It's a, it's a lack of trust. W- without it, relationships fall apart, and with it, relationships thrive. T- today, we're continuing in a series that we started on September 11th titled, Different. We're over the course of seven weeks, we're speaking to seven values that we uphold here at Grumlaw Church, the defining marks of this faith community. These are what we believe set us apart. These are the unique convictions that God has laid upon this church. Now, those seven values, just in case you haven't been here with us for the entirety of the series, are belong before you believe, we uphold biblical truth, contagious joy, live generously. We talked last week about we expect God to move. This week, assume the best, and, and then we'll wrap it up next week by talking about obedience is the win. So, so if this is your first week joining us, or maybe life has been really, really busy this fall, and you haven't been with us here for every week of this series, I'd highly, highly encourage you to get yourself caught up at grumlaw.com slash messages, or you can find us in the Grumlaw Church, wherever it is that you grab those podcasts. I especially think this is important if, if you're new around here, if you're considering kind of laying down roots here in this faith community. This series, really more than any other series we will do, will really give you a great idea of what we are all about here. Now today, as already mentioned, we're entering into part six of seven. So the end is near. And consequently, what we're going to be talking about, the ever so important value of assume the best. Trust, as we just briefly mentioned, is the linchpin of of any healthy relationship. And and a lack of trust spells the demise of any relationship. But but even amongst the healthiest of relationships, let's just say in in, an exceedingly healthy marriage, for example, there are moments, right, where where, where trust is, is eroded. Nobody bats a thousand in that particular area. I would say, for instance, as a whole, that my wife and I, and I don't say this to be braggadocious in any way, this is by the grace of God, but my wife and I, I think we have a very, very healthy marriage. Do mostly, I will add, to my wife and her temperament, her exceedingly high patience. And even though my wife and I rarely fight, even though our marriage has been 99.9% joy, we really have never had a difficult season in our marriage at worst, maybe like a difficult 24 hours, even though it's been a healthy marriage, there have been moments where 
where, where trust has been eroded, mostly and usually due to me. Uh, for instance, early on in my marriage, I was thinking about this. Uh, I would intentionally not give my wife all of the details for something that was coming up. Or I, I would sort of intentionally, and when I say sort of, I would definitely intentionally spring stuff on her last minute. Uh, a very practical example. Uh, this time of year, I, I love to deer hunt. If you love the little deer, I'm so sorry, but that's something I really enjoy to do with my brothers and my dad in particular. And, and I would often, early on in my marriage, I, I would have a trip planned to go out of town for like weeks with my brothers and with my dad, and, and I would wait for whatever reason, this kind of manipulated thing in my mind, I would wait till like the Thursday before, I was going to leave on a Friday to actually tell her that I was going out of town. I think as I really like dig in and try to root this out, it, it came from this place of if I tell her last minute and all the plans are already in place, there's no way that she can tell me no. But oftentimes this would leave her pretty frustrated. She's like, I thought we were going to hang out tomorrow night. I thought we were going to go on a date tomorrow night. And so she, she kind of began to pick up on this, and she, she began to lean into this and very politely tell me, ah, Shay, I think, um, I think maybe you're doing this on purpose. It, it eroded trust. And she pleaded with me to be more forthcoming with details in the future. To trust, it was chipped away. But through primarily my, my behavior, my actions, me showing Andrea that I was willing to and would make a conscious effort to change, to be better, that, that trust, it was, it was gained back, and it would have actually make us eventually healthier than, than before. Now, conversely, if I refused to change, if I continued to just march full steam ahead with my rather suspicious behavior, it would have created more difficulties in our relationship. It, it would have actually undermined our marriage. So, so trust, again, it can be eroded, and trust can, can be gained. But, but let's maybe dig a little bit deeper. Let, let's get a little bit more nuanced. There are also moments in, in relationships and friendships where, where we don't have all the facts, where, where we're only offered just like a portion of the story. You, for instance, you receive that cryptic text from a, from a coworker and you think, well, what in the heck is that supposed to mean? You, you, you hear a story about your spouse from a friend and, and internally you're thinking, do I need to start panicking? You're left a voicemail from your kid's school asking to call back when you're going to get a quick second and and that pit kind of begins to creep into your stomach. Your friend tells you something about another friend, and, and you're left to kind of fill in the gaps. See, in every single one of those situations, and in fact, many more, we all have a decision to make. And in fact, we all make it, whether you realize it or, or, or not. And even if it's buried in your subconscious, I promise you, how you respond in these moments, it, it either erodes trust or it, or it builds trust. In these moments, you're making the choice to either assume the best or assume the worst. Fill the gap with trust or fill the gap with suspicion. When there's a gap between what someone did and what you expected them to do, between what you know for sure and the rest of the story, you either fill that gap with trust or suspicion. You assume the best or you assume the worst. I promise you there's no such thing as middle or neutral ground in this regard. And what happens, and mind you, that this is completely on you, that the person, your son, your daughter, your wife, your husband, your friend, that they can't determine this decision. This is on you. Well, what happens is every single time you assume the best, you're making a trust deposit into that relational bank. And conversely, every single time you assume the worst, you're making a trust withdrawal from that relational bank. 
And with the remaining time that we have together here this morning, I'd like, to, I'd like to attempt to make my case for why we, why the people of Grumlaw should be a people who assume the best. Why, why we would all be wise to be trust deposit people. And, and by the way, if you're sitting here today, and I know that, that this describes some of you watching right now, and, and you're on the fence about this whole Jesus thing, you're just kind of beginning to lean into this conversation, what we're talking about today happens to be one of those areas that, that even though, yes, this is indeed a Christian principle, that is, it, it originated, it was made popular by Jesus, it, it's one of those things that, that everyone, even like the most staunch atheists, would be wise to embrace and live out. Because, and I say that, it will have exclusively positive implications for your life and the lives of the people around you. It'll make you a better husband. It'll make you a better wife. It'll make you a better parent. It'll make you a better neighbor. It'll make you a better friend. It'll make you a better boss. It'll make you a better employee. You'll have a more positive outlook on life. You'll be less irritable. You'll experience more joy. Exclusively positive benefits for you and the people around you. So even if you're sitting here right now and, and you reject Jesus, please don't be so hard-headed to reject this particular teaching. This is yet another example of why following Jesus will make you better and make you better at life. Now, now there's a guy that we read an awful lot about in this book that we call the Bible. In fact, the second half of the Bible uh, was written in large part, actually, by this individual who went by the name of Paul. Now, if you're not familiar with this book that we call the Bible, and in particular, you've never really heard the name Paul before, you probably don't know that Paul actually used to be referred to as Saul. Uh, Saul was a part of a, of a particular sect of Judaism that, that practiced this really, really strict adherence to the law. That is, those 613 laws contained within the Jewish scriptures. And uh, among the Pharisees, the sect of Judaism, but Paul, or again, previously known as Saul, he kind of stood at the top. He, he was following, memorizing these 613 rules well better than anyone. So, so when this new movement comes along that we now refer to as Christianity, and begins to take these 613 laws and reduces it down to, well, two, love God and love people. And in fact, your love for God is best authenticated and demonstrated by how well you love the people around you. Let's just say that the Pharisees, for the most part, uh, they didn't really want to embrace that. And Saul kind of stood there and was like, yeah, yeah, this ain't happening. And he kind of took it upon himself to make sure that Christianity would not make it out of the first century. And he was a type A personality. He was getting it done. He was going around arresting and persecuting and even killing Christians, making sure that Christianity would not survive. But then through an event that only God could have possibly orchestrated, this is where we get our Damascus Road phraseology, through his Damascus Road experience, God flips the script on Saul's life. He gives him a new name called Paul. And now the once, the, the guy who was on the front lines uh, trying to eradicate Christianity from the face of the earth, he's now going basically around to the entire ancient Mediterranean world telling everyone about Jesus. And, and he would start these churches all over the ancient Mediterranean world. And oftentimes he would write letters back to these churches. One of these letters he wrote was to the early Christian church in Rome. And in this letter, he addresses how we ought to treat other people, regardless of how they treat us. Regardless, in fact, of previous interactions with those individuals, regardless of what you might have actually heard of those people. And I want you to keep in mind who is saying this, who is writing these words down. It would have sounded pretty ludicrous to all of the people who were aware of Paul's previous life. 
we, we pick up in Romans chapter 15. He, he says there quite plainly, we must not just please ourselves. Now, I'm telling you right here, this one statement, if every single person watching right now, if every follower of Jesus would embrace this, it would have the ability to change the dynamics for the better of literally every relationship in your life. This one statement, while completely counterculture to what our Western society would advocate, it remains central to what it means to actually follow Jesus. In fact, there's actually a very compelling case to be made that this is the single most important value that Jesus would advocate for during his time on earth. Living this out would indeed capture the attention of our world, putting other people ahead of yourself. In fact, in many, many ways, it was living like this that allowed the first century church to not only simply survive, but actually thrive. That despite such persecution, despite all the odds stacked against those early Christians, it, it, it emerged victorious largely because of this one value. And, and what's sort of interesting is, is Christian or not, you sure like this on other people. You're just not so sure when it comes to, to you. It, it, it's one of those things that's kind of fun to talk about, but, but it proves often difficult to actually live into. Paul continues, he said, we should help others do what is right and build them up in the Lord. Now, now here's what I'm sure of. You cannot build someone up. You cannot help other people do what is right if, if you're assuming the worst in them. If you're constantly making those trust withdrawals from that shared relational bank. If you're assuming that they're going to fail before they even begin. If you're looking at them with the glass half empty while, while wanting them to look at you with the glass half full. If you're constantly running through worst case scenarios in your head as you stare at them and you, in, you internally eye roll them as they respond, it becomes next to impossible to build that person up and actually help them. See, what we so often fail to recognize is that talking and even thinking negatively about someone else has, has a spillover into how we treat that someone else. It's exceedingly difficult. I'll actually say it's impossible. My life has shown me that. It's impossible to separate the two. If you consistently have negative, worst-case scenario thoughts about another person, that that will absolutely result in how you treat that person. You will treat them poorly. And so if we want to change how we treat people, it begins with our thoughts. It begins with those internal conversations that we're having with said individual. Change your mind and your actions, your treatment of that person will inevitably follow. Uh, at the beginning of my sophomore year of college, um, I kind of lived into the full experience of college in my freshman year, and I, I know that my parents and many others were praying for me, hoping that I would get my life together. And I kind of stood out on this rather conservative Christian college campus, and I kind of marched into my sophomore year thinking I'm just going to do a lot more of what I did in, in my freshman year. And for honestly a lot of reasons that still aren't super clear to me, unbeknownst to me at that time, there, there was a guy who was actually a captain on the men's soccer program that was going to, to, to the soccer coach, Mark Castro, was going to him and saying, hey, uh, we know we have this position that needs to be filled right now, the director of soccer operations. I have the perfect guy for you. His name is Shea Prisk. And, and I know because David, the guy that was advocating for me, he's actually an elder at this church now. Crazy story how that all kind of came about too. 
Uh, I know that that was laughed at. It was like, are you kidding me? Uh, my reputation kind of went before me at that point. He's like, he, he might literally be the last person on this campus that we would select for this position. But, but for whatever reason, David saw something in me that few people at that point in my life saw. And he kept going back. He kept persisting. He kept saying, hey, th this is the guy. He's the most organized dude that I know. I'm telling you, he'd be a great fit for this team. He's going to get his life together. Hire him, hire him, hire him. It eventually resulted in a phone call from the coach to me and, and then in an interview. And again, for still reasons that don't remain totally clear, I, I was offered the position and I actually took it. Now, now what I'm going to tell you is that belief in and of itself that that belief extended from David to me was transformational in my life. It, it sort of awoke me to my stupidity. It, it was that feeling of like, I, I better start getting my life together. Uh, otherwise, I, I'm not only going to continue to make myself look stupid, I, I'm going to make David look stupid, who, who really went out on a limb for me. And, and as it would turn out, those relationships... That time on that team with a bunch of young men who were desperately trying to pursue Jesus, it, it would completely alter the trajectory of my life. I'm not just saying this for hyperbole. As I really thought about this, as I was thinking about that scenario, thinking about that time in my life, I can honestly tell you, I would not be standing right here right now without that time spent with the Indiana Wesleyan men's soccer program. And the only reason it happened was because someone assumed the best in me. Paul goes on to wrap a bow on this thought by reminding us of something, as if just the practical benefits aren't, aren't enough. He says we should help others do what is right and build them up in the Lord. And then he makes this rather plain statement. He's like, for, for even Christ, for even Jesus, didn't live to please himself. See, this isn't just a value, this assume the best. It's not just a value to be proclaimed. It's, it's a way of life audaciously modeled to us through the blood of our risen Savior. Now, I want you to think about this just very practically. If there was anyone in the history of the world that could have reasonably wielded his power and wielded his authority for the benefit of himself and nobody would have batted an eye, it, it, it was Jesus, the, the Son of God. But yet here comes Jesus and he models literally the complete opposite. He humbles himself to the lowest of lows. He even subjecting himself to, to, to death on a cross, a criminal's death. And, and he does it for, for you and, and for me. The, the day that Jesus allowed himself to be crucified, to be killed for, for every one of us, for, for specifically you, well, on that day he assumed the best in you. In fact, it's just a little bit earlier in Romans that we're reminded of this fact. It's one of the most popular passages in all of Scripture, Romans 5.8. But God showed, he demonstrated, he modeled, he didn't just talk about it. He, he, he showed us his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Not once we had it together. Not once we had somehow proven ourselves to God. No, no, no. In the midst of our rebellion, frankly, while we least deserved it, Jesus freely offered himself for, for you. He assumed that the best in you. And what's so wild for me to think about is he's assuming the best in you and I right, right now. 
no matter how lowly you might think of yourself, regardless of how distant you might feel from him, despite the fact that we're basically constantly turning our backs to him and rejecting him, he's still making those trust deposits in you, hoping that that you're going to eventually turn to, to, to him. For the followers of Jesus who are watching right now, plain and simple, this right here is why we assume the best in others. So overcome that, that, that Jesus would do this for us, we willingly choose to now extend this to others. As his representatives on this earth, this is one of the most clear, most compelling ways that we can show Jesus to our broken world. In a world that is so quick to jump to the negative, that is quick to point out the faults in others, that this way of living, it grabs the attention of those around us. It stands out. It demands a closer look, just like that first century church. So, two very, very practical ways that you can begin to practice this, that you can begin to live this out, begin to train yourself into this different way of living. Number one, who do you need to have an I see in you conversation with? I shared a little bit about what David did for me in in my early years of college. It it would turn into one of the most transformative experiences of my life. And honestly, this is what usually happens when these conversations are had. This is the norm when you sit somebody down with the sole agenda to just express to them, hey, I see this in you. I see something in you right now that I don't think you see in yourself. I believe in you. Your expressed trust, which is what this is, we are verbalizing our trust in another person. It has the opportunity to change the course of another person's life. And then when you take it another level, when you only further back that up with your treatment of that person, I'm telling you, life-altering stuff. And think about this. This is nuts. We live in such a negative culture that for most of us who are watching and paying attention right now, that there's literally something right now, as I verbalize this, as I articulate this, that's going, uh, I don't know. That's sort of pushing back. We have gotten so sucked into the negativity vortex that even Christians, we initially push back on this. So so I'm telling you, not only will this have a dramatic impact on on the individual whom you're speaking to, whom you're you're giving these life-giving words, it will have an impact on you. It begins to break the cycle of constantly making those trust withdrawals and begins to train your heart in the way of Jesus. Who is a person this week that, that, that you can have this conversation with? That, that you can literally sit down and just say, I see this in you. I believe in you. M- might it be that employee who y- you haven't gotten to the point that, that you're going to fire them, but let's be honest, you've all but just mentally checked out with them. Might it be a neighbor Some of you parents watching right now, when is the last time you sat down your child 
not to be critical, not, not to discipline them, but you just sat them down just to express to them how much you believe in them. When's the last time you've spoken these type of words to your spouse? Might, might it literally just be the person that, that consistently checks you out at the grocery store? I want to challenge you right now. I'm guessing you're not having to think very hard right now about that person, that if you're paying attention and your heart is softened to what the Holy Spirit wants to speak to you right now, you have a name right now. Write it down. Make it a priority. Schedule it. Have that conversation this week. And then number two, whose relational balance has gotten overdraft fee low? See, this happens, right? When, when, when you don't really actually have enough money to spend, you're, you're in the negative balance category in your bank account, but the bank, for whatever reason, ends up letting you actually spend into the negative. And what do they do in those scenarios? You know, they say, oh, that's okay, just pay us back and I'll be good. No, no, they end up hitting you with an overdraft fee. Like, so not only do you got to pay back the money that you didn't really have to begin with, you, you get hit with a $35, $50, $100 fee on top of that. Who in your life right now are, are you operating in this manner with? That, that, that person that you have made so many trust withdrawals from that relational account th- through the words that you've spoken to them. Maybe more importantly, the nonverbals relayed to them, the eye rolls, all the <sighs> sighs, the lack of engagement, the lack of eye contact, and perhaps most damaging, how low you have reduced them in your own mind and in what you think of them. And you need to instead begin to make those trust deposits. Literally starting today. Or maybe it's a person you work with. So starting tomorrow. Think about this. Is it possible that your incredibly low estimation of that individual and in turn how that has resulted in your treatment of that person has in some way kind of forced their hand? Is it possible that that he's simply living into the attitude that you've consistently modeled towards him? Is she simply living into the attitude that you've consistently modeled towards her? Your child? Your wife? That employee? That neighbor? I'm telling you that they've picked up on those cues a whole lot more than you have likely considered. That, that, that person that you have belittled so significantly in your own mind that, that you literally cannot think about, you, you cannot see them without thinking something negative. Uh, I'll remind us of what we've already discussed. We make this decision every day, multiple times a day. When there's a gap between what we know and what actually happened, we choose to either assume the worst or assume the best. And every single time we assume the worst, trust withdrawal. Every time we assume the best, trust deposit. And again, this doesn't only impact our treatment of that individual whom God has perhaps strategically placed in our lives, a fellow image bearer, by the way, whom Jesus saw fit to die for. It impacts us. It's molding. It's shaping your heart. For, for better or for worse. 
We, we either make that heart harder, more like that of the world, or we train it to become more and more like the heart of Jesus. As hard as this will be at first, start asking questions about that person's life. Invite them over for a meal. Ask them to lunch. Just shoot them an encouraging text. To take a real, tangible step towards assuming the best in them. Church, I'm telling you, even as your pastor, it is embarrassing the number of times I have had to eat crow in my life after simply just learning more about a person's story, that, that I have reduced them so greatly in my own mind, and then I'm like, you know what? I get that little ping from the Holy Spirit that I'm like, I don't really know much about this person. And so I just lean in and just ask them a little bit about their life. And I'm sitting there going, oh my gosh, you knucklehead. I didn't know that was going on in their life. I, I didn't know they experienced this at their last place of employment. I, I didn't know they had all that hardship in their story. For, for some of you, you know that this week, in light of what God is speaking to you right now, literally right now as, as I speak, you know it's going to require you to suck up your pride and sit somebody down this week and just offer them a very sincere apology. You guys, this is a big deal. This is life-altering stuff. It, it might feel like a small, even, even an insignificant step to you, but, but I'm telling you, it could have drastic, life-changing implications for someone else. And, and here, in fact, is how I know I'm not overstating that. Because I just challenge you to actually think about you for a second. Imagine what it would mean for some of you if your boss pulled you into his office, her office tomorrow morning, and he just expressed how much he believed in you. That was the whole reason that he asked you to step in. No criticism. No, you could be doing this better. Just, just, he just wanted to have an I see in you conversation. That wouldn't just affect your attitude. I bet for some of you, it would affect your productivity. It would impact your career. For some of you, imagine if you got a text today from, from mom or dad that simply said, I believe in you so much. You have made me so proud as a parent. Some of you right now, you're watching, and the very thought of that is bringing tears to your eyes. Think about that coworker that you just can't seem to get along with. Imagine that person coming up to you tomorrow and just asking you a couple genuine questions about your family. And you could tell in the moment, it's like, this is, this is actually sincere. Think how much relational equity would be regained by just a five-minute conversation like that. When we assume the best in others, we're modeling what, what Jesus has done for every single one of us what he's currently doing for you and I. And so it probably shouldn't surprise us when, when living into this not only alters our lives, but, but so many of the lives around us.